it didn't take long for the haters to spew their hatred. Immediately after the news broke that President Trump and his wife, the First Lady, tested positive for the deadly coronavirus, the rejoicing commenced on social media. And the mainstream media hysteria? That kicked into overdrive. How bad did it get? Stay tuned. Attorney, Fox News legal analyst, and two-time New York Times bestselling author. This is The Brief with Greg Jarrett. Hello, everyone. I'm Greg Jarrett, and welcome to The Brief. The ugly underbelly of hatred and anti-Trump mania converged when President Trump was diagnosed with COVID. A former spokesperson for Hillary Clinton, Zara Rahim, who also worked for Barack Obama, tweeted, I hope he dies. She then posted a smiling selfie with the caption, This effin' rules. Twitter was awash with glee. Some hoped the president had infected scores of Republicans. Others dreamed of how Donald Trump would end up hooked to a ventilator. And Hollywood, well, they weren't far behind in channeling their ill will. Actor Dominic West told a television show he felt joy at the news of Trump's illness. Malcolm Nance, a favorite intelligence commentator on MSNBC, seemed to savor the prospect that the virus might fell both the president and the vice president, tweeting out, Think about it. OMG, if both Trump and Pence go down, Team Pelosi could be president. Pretty disgusting stuff. Still others took a different approach. Left-wing media activist Michael Moore, who thinks there's a conspiracy behind every door, suggested that Trump was lying about testing positive for the virus so he could delay or postpone the presidential election and somehow stay in office. MSNBC host Joy Reid must have loved that one because she chimed in by insinuating something similar. Trump faked his diagnosis to avoid more debates with Joe Biden. And then there was a Minnesota newspaper that mocked the president's illness the day after he tested positive, writing, man, anyone else just in a really good, inexplicable mood this morning? I could spend the next 20 minutes recounting the plethora of vile comments, but frankly, I feel sorry for these people. They're bereft of kindness and compassion and grace. They're incapable of either sympathy or empathy. They're the kind of people, and sadly, we all know a few of them, who take perverse pleasure in the misfortune of others. The ugliness of hatred infects their uncaring, unhappy lives. To some extent, the prevalence of social media bears the blame because it's all too easy for people to cavalierly fling invectives and post their venomous comments. All it takes to be obnoxious publicly these days is the click of a few keys. And there are no real consequences. Millions tweet their gleeful malice anonymously, like a sniper who hides while firing his deadly shots. Twitter eventually addressed the hate-filled posts that dominated so many accounts, 
posting the following message. Tweets that wish or hope for death, serious bodily injury, or fatal disease against anyone are not allowed and will need to be removed. But it was way too late. The haters had already exposed themselves and their malignant hearts. Many of those who conveyed their death wishes to President Trump will be sorely disappointed in the end. To begin with, the chances that Trump would succumb to the virus are statistically remote. Scientific studies show the infection fatality rate at roughly 1%. The case fatality rate is a bit higher, pegged at 2 to 3%. But the latest and most reliable figures from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, known as the CDC, places the overall infection fatality rate at less than 1%. More precisely, 0.62%. And yes, older people are more at risk, so the mortality figure that applies to Donald Trump, who's 74 years old, would be higher. But still, his risk is exceedingly low. The president stands an excellent chance of recovering completely. Factor into the equation that, as president, he's being constantly monitored and receiving the best medical attention and one can reasonably conclude that President Trump will be back to full strength in short order and resuming his presidential campaign. All of this is based on science and statistical facts. But none of that seemed to matter as the mainstream media instantly launched into its habitual and predictable hysteria in the first 24 hours after Trump's diagnosis was made public. When his doctors, in an abundance of caution, decided to transfer his care from the White House to Walter Reed Medical Center, the media madness reached a fevered pitch. A hyperintensive and collective scream, really. Forget that Trump walked out on his own to Marine One for the short trip to Walter Reed. Minor detail to the media. To hear them tell it, Trump was nearly comatose or at least they wanted him to be, all reason and sanity was suddenly abandoned. Very few paused to take a calm, deep breath and consider the established facts and statistical likelihood that the president would almost certainly recover and do so fairly quickly. Instead, rumors, misinformation, and conspiracy theories, fed by the usual anonymous sources, of course, spread in print and on the airways like, well, an out-of-control contagion. Where's the vice president, they asked? Is he ready to be sworn in as president? How does the line of succession work exactly? What if Trump is still alive but incapacitated? Who makes the decision? Is the presidential election functionally over, they wondered aloud? With ballots already printed, who takes over as the Republican nominee? Is it Mike Pence? Does the Republican National Committee pick someone else? What do the electors in the Electoral College do? It went on and on ad nauseum. A stampede of alarm and confusion ensued as the media speculated wildly and irresponsibly about every conceivable and improbable what-if scenario. I half expected them to start pre-publishing Trump's funeral plans, 
including the lovely flower arrangements and the expected seating priority in the pews of a church. Democrats, in the meantime, seized the moment to exploit their increasingly liberal agenda. Trump's diagnosis was a golden opportunity to them, a crisis not to be wasted. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said she was praying for the president, but within a nanosecond, she attacked Donald Trump over his diagnosis. We must have spatial distancing. We must be wearing our masks. We must have sanitation because it can help crush the virus and stop the spread. So maybe now that people who see the president of the United States with all the protection that he has and the first lady still having this exposure, it might be, as you say, a learning experience. But more than learning, it has to be something that is acted upon. This is tragic. It's very sad. But it also is something that, that uh, again, uh, going into crowds, uh, unmasked and all the rest, was sort of a, a brazen invitation for something like this to happen. Sad that it did, uh, but nonetheless hopeful uh, that it will be a transition to a saner approach to what this virus is all about. Right, Nancy. Can you spell hypocrisy? Let's remember that Pelosi is the elected leader who called Trump's China travel ban outrageous and racist. Pelosi's the one who, at the outset of the pandemic, visited Chinatown in San Francisco and encouraged everyone to visit the shops and restaurants there amid the fears of the coronavirus. You should come to Chinatown, she ordered them. And then she added, We know there's concern, but we think it's very safe to be in Chinatown, and hopefully others will come. But we have to be very vigilant and and, uh, careful, but nonetheless, not to uh, instill fear. And that's what we're trying to do today is to say everything is fine here. Come, because precautions have been taken. The city is on top of the situation. And uh, so comfortable to be here. Happy to be here. Sage advice, Nancy. And of course, who can forget Pelosi's infamous visit to her hair salon, where she was videotaped not wearing a face mask and getting her hair washed in violation of the city's coronavirus restrictions. Naturally, Nancy blames someone else, falsely claiming that she was set up. She even had the gall to demand an apology. No, I've been there many over the years. I've been there many times. I appreciate I appreciate the question. And let me just say this. I take responsibility for trusting uh, the word of a neighborhood salon that I've been to over the years many times. And that um, when they said, well, we're able to accommodate people one person at a time and that we can set up that time, I trusted that. As it turns out, it wasn't set up. So I take responsibility for falling for a setup. And that's all I'm going to say on that. Well, I don't. I think that they owe, uh, that this salon owes me an apology for setting up. But I will say this in fairness to him and in sympathetic to him. We have to get our country moving again. Personal message to Nancy. Yes, I do wear a mask when I get my hair cut, and I don't take it off when my hair is washed. Also, Nancy, no one set you up. You know that. You did it all on your own because you think you're special. 
and you came across as an arrogant and privileged spoiled brat for demanding an apology. As Pelosi raged against Trump for coming down with the coronavirus, as seven million other Americans have, her comrade in the U.S. Senate, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, sought to use the president's diagnosis as an excuse to delay the confirmation of Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett. Forget that his rationale is totally vacuous and makes no sense whatsoever. Schumer said, quote, It's not safe for the Senate Judiciary Committee to hold a hearing since three out of 100 U.S. senators have now tested positive for the virus. Schumer knows that his call for a delay is transparently phony. Over the last several months, other senators have tested positive and recovered. It never delayed U.S. Senate business before, including the holding of countless hearings. Schumer must be living in a time warp. It's now routine that some senators participate in the hearings virtually. Dozens and dozens of important hearings have been conducted by that very method, including one by the Judiciary Committee just last week. Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, who control the confirmation process, have already told Schumer to go stuff it. Republican Senator Tom Cotton explained why. Several of the senators uh, who are in isolation right now would come out of isolation before those hearings begin. But the Senate Judiciary Committee has also conducted 20 hearings this year that have either been in part or in whole virtual. Many Senate Democrats who are now saying we couldn't possibly do a virtual hearing were demanding throughout this year, going back to March, that all committees be conducted over Zoom or WebEx or some other kind of virtual hearing. So the hearing is going to go forward, no doubt in my mind, starting a week from tomorrow. The liberal media, which is nearly everyone these days, is also propounding the fantasy that Judge Barrett's confirmation must be delayed. On MSNBC, Joe Scarborough, who's made a career out of being chronically wrong, ventured yet another one of his dunderheaded predictions the day after Trump's diagnosis. Joe's wife and echo chamber, Mika Brzezinski, was there to confirm the following reckless statement. It's likely that both Mitch McConnell and Judge Barrett are infected with the virus. Seriously, he said that. Again, it's very important for everyone that has been exposed, especially uh, when you're talking about the Supreme Court nominee, yeah. the President Trump Supreme Court nominee. Has she been exposed? Has Mitch McConnell been exposed? It sounds like they likely have. And if that's the case, uh, that's something that obviously pushes uh, any any. Uh, hearings uh, uh, back at least two weeks, at least three weeks. The president obviously telling us uh, from the debate stage on Tuesday night he wants to expedite Mm -hmm. her nomination as quickly as possible because he wants her vote on any challenge that he has to the outcome of election results. Um, I, I, again, with if we do the contact tracing, it seems that that is unlikely Uh, to happen over the next few weeks, at least until um, everybody is cleared. Oh, my gosh, that's right, said Mika. The hard truth is that neither the Supreme Court nominee nor the Senate majority leader have been diagnosed with the virus. They've tested negative so far. 
But that didn't stop Joe and Mika from declaring with certainty that it's likely they've been infected. There was no basis in fact or evidence to make such an impetuous and irresponsible claim, but that's the kind of thin gruel that MSNBC viewers are consuming every day when they tune in to Morning Joe. You can make a fortune betting against Joe and Mika's prophecies. They just blather incoherently their nonstop anti-Trump garbage, summoned from nowhere, and then sprinkled on television airwaves like invisible stardust. Why anyone tunes in to this Abbott and Costello routine is a mystery. Without a doubt, the confirmation hearing and vote on Trump's Supreme Court nominee will take place as scheduled. Trump's virus infection is utterly irrelevant. The moment he made the selection and referred his nominee to the U.S. Senate, he discharged his duty and power under the Constitution. His role ended. It's now squarely in the hands of the Republican-controlled Senate, and it's a matter of pure math. The numbers are there to confirm, and it's a fait accompli. That doesn't mean that Democrats won't employ every procedural hocus-pocus maneuver to try to delay the inevitable. But it's over. It's nearly impossible to derail an eminently qualified judge from serving on the high court, particularly one who cannot be borked like Robert Bork or Kavanaugh like Brett Kavanaugh, that is to say, smeared by lies or decades-old claims of rape. Barrett's inexorable elevation to the high court makes the media's previous bout of hysteria over her nomination seem, well, more hysterical, as in funny, when seen in the rearview mirror. Here's what I mean. A couple of weeks ago, the media was apoplectic, hyperventilating, when Trump said he'd exercise his constitutional authority to nominate someone before the presidential election. ABC's George Stephanopoulos became unglued on his Sunday morning talk show as he begged Nancy Pelosi to impeach Trump all over again, quote, as a way to stop the nomination. Good idea, George. Just invent some pretext to impeach. Now, there's no appetite for that, none whatsoever. Not that George would ever recognize it. In hindsight, his idea just looks dumb. And now the media looks foolish all over again for its childish hysteria over Trump's positive COVID test and incessant exaggerations. Citing several sources, always unnamed, of course, the media seem to have had Donald Trump lingering on his deathbed with vital signs barely detectable. It was untrue, all of it. After a day in the hospital, Trump addressed the nation via video and assured the public he's fine and feeling better, thanks to new and effective treatments that have been developed over the last several months. I want to begin by thanking all of the incredible medical professionals, the doctors, the nurses, everybody at Walter Reed Medical Center. I think it's the finest in the world for the incredible job they've been doing. Uh, I came here, wasn't feeling so well. I feel much better now. We're working hard to get me all the way back. I have to be back because we still have to make America great again. We've done an awfully good job of that but we still have steps to go and we have to finish that job. 
and I'll be back. I think I'll be back soon. And I look forward to finishing up the campaign the way it was started and the way we've been doing and the kind of numbers that we've been doing. We've been so proud of it. But this was something that happened and it's happened to millions of people all over the world and I'm fighting for them, not just in the US, I'm fighting for them all over the world. We're gonna beat this coronavirus or whatever you wanna call it and we're gonna beat it soundly. So many things have happened. If you look at the therapeutics, which I'm taking right now, some of them, and others are coming out soon that are looking like, uh, frankly, they're miracles. If you want to know the truth, they're miracles. People criticize me when I say that, but we have things happening that look like they're miracles coming down from God. So I just want to tell you that I'm starting to feel good. Uh, you don't know over the next period of a few days, I guess that's the real test. So we'll be seeing what happens over those next next couple of days. I just want to be so thankful for all of the support I've seen, whether it's on television or reading about it. Uh, I most of all appreciate what's been said by the American people, by almost a bipartisan consensus of American people. It's a beautiful thing to see. And I very much appreciate it and I won't forget it. I promise you that. I also want to thank the leaders of the world for uh, their condolences and their, they know what we're going through. They know what, as your leader, what I have to go through. But I had no choice because I just didn't want to stay in the White House. I was given that alternative. Stay in the White House, lock yourself in, don't ever leave. Don't even go to the Oval Office. Just stay upstairs and enjoy it. Don't see people, don't talk to people and just be done with it. And. I can't do that. I had to be out front and this is America. This is the United States. This is the greatest country in the world. This is the most powerful country in the world. I can't be locked up in a room upstairs and totally safe and uh, just say, hey, whatever happens, happens. I can't do that. We have to confront problems. As a leader, you have to confront problems. There's never been a great leader that would have done that. That was Saturday. By Sunday, President Trump's condition was even better. He left the hospital and drove through the many groups of supporters who had gathered outside Walter Reed. He waved and gave a thumbs up as people cheered, honked horns, and waved American flags. Just before Trump ventured outdoors, he posted another message to the American people on camera, where he appeared strong and in good spirits. We're getting great reports from the doctors. This is an incredible hospital, Walter Reed. The work they do is just absolutely amazing, and I want to thank them all, the nurses, the doctors, everybody here. I've also gotten to meet some of the soldiers and the first responders and what a group. I also think we're going to pay a little surprise to some of the great patriots that we have out on the street. And they've been out there for a long time and they've got Trump flags and they love our country. So I'm not telling anybody but you, but I'm about to make a little surprise visit. So perhaps I'll get there before you get to see me. Uh, but I just uh, when I look at the enthusiasm and we have enthusiasm like probably nobody's ever had our people that love the job we're doing. We have more enthusiasm than maybe anybody. 
So uh, it's been a very interesting journey. I learned a lot about COVID. I learned it by really going to school. This is the real school. This isn't the let's read the book school. And I get it and I understand it. And it's a very interesting thing. And I'm going to be letting you know about it. In the meantime, we love the USA and we love what's happening. Thank you. We're getting great. President Trump spent a considerable amount of his time at Walter Reed working from a presidential office there, holding virtual meetings, communicating by telephone. Photos of the president at work put a swift end to the false media claim that the helm of government had been left vacant. That's when the haters invented a brand new line of attack. Trump's doctors had administered a steroid called dexamethasone on Saturday to raise his oxygen level, and it worked. But by Sunday, the president's critics declared the drug had rendered him incapable of carrying out his constitutional duties, and he must be replaced under the 25th Amendment. It didn't seem to matter that Trump tolerated the drug well and showed no adverse side effects. Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe, who has spent the last four years leveling craven rants against Trump, suggested that the president should step down or be forced to give up power under the 25th Amendment. Neil Katyal, another Trump hater who served in the Obama administration, tweeted that the steroid, quote, has side effects, including emotional instability, not good for someone currently holding the launch codes. 25th Amendment issues regarding transfer of power now loom. And then a Stanford law professor chimed in, declaring the president is, quote, incapacitated. How in the world did she know? None of these people are doctors. They're not trained in medicine. They haven't examined the president. They have no idea what his condition is. They're lawyers pretending to be experts on a subject that they know little about. Did they even bother to read the medical literature before mouthing off? If they had, they would have learned that negative side effects like mood swings, confusion, or irritation are linked to prolonged use of that steroid. Look it up on the World Health Organization's website where it states, quote, adverse events are not associated with short-term use. It goes on to explain that it happens only to some patients when the drug has been given for more than two weeks. Trump received it on one day, and by the end of the weekend, he was poised to return to the White House. Trump's rapid recovery also exposed the frenzy of the so-called medical experts. On Friday night, former Obama health advisor Dr. Zeke Emanuel was grim in his assessment that Trump could even survive. After MSNBC's Rachel Maddow all but picked out the casket for Trump, Emanuel confirmed to her that the president faced a substantial risk of dying. I'll give Dr. Sanjay Gupta on CNN credit for maintaining sanity. He put the extremely low fatality data into proper context. He told viewers that the odds were very strong that Trump would recover. He didn't fall for the lunacy from anchors like Jake Tapper, who was a one-man wrecking ball of agitation, recrimination, and blame. Tapper suffers from a far more debilitating case of Trump derangement syndrome than the president's COVID diagnosis. 
President Trump's recovery won't stop the media mania. They pray for his demise. They wear their unabashed scorn on their sleeves whenever the red tally light glows above the television camera. And the print media is much the same. Their hallucinations that Donald Trump is the Antichrist infects their every story. They'll continue to rage until Election Day, rooting for his defeat. Their zeal knows no bounds. Their fury has no limits. Journalistic objectivity in the age of Donald Trump is nothing but a quaint artifact. Activism has supplanted principled journalism. Reporters now openly advocate that the media must take sides. But there's only one side they'll take, the side against Trump. And they're all in. It's guerrilla warfare. The media madness has reached the advanced stage of crazed psychosis. Naturally, Trump is to blame for their illness. He made them lose their minds. This invites the question, when journalists take sides, who will speak the truth? And what happens to reporting facts? Well, the answer is, it all gets buried. Partisanship and propaganda fill the conspicuous void. Lies proliferate. An ocean of polemic washes over all of us. Trump is the immediate victim, to be sure. But in the end, the biggest losers are the American people. And that's The Brief. I'm Greg Jarrett. Thanks for listening.